Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 83. I'm your host, Eric Moore, and today we're going to be talking about the election. Do presidents matter? What are the returns for different presidents, Democrat or Republican? Some really interesting uh, sort of anomalies have come up recently with the construct of the House, the Senate, the presidency. And uh, with me today, a special guest, Spencer Wright from Halbert Wealth. Uh, Spencer, how are you today? Derek, hi, I'm great. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here and uh, have a chance to talk about this today. It's a fascinating subject, and I hope we can do it some justice. Yeah, and it's interesting because four years ago, we probably were on the phone. We're not going to do two hours today, but we were probably on the phone for two hours. (laughs) At least. And we were just, yeah, we were kind of just going back and forth, not only handicapping the race and looking at the states, and we'll we'll do some of that uh, a little bit later, as well as the Senate. But we were talking recently, and I said, you know, before we get too in depth, why don't we just have this conversation? We'll, we'll turn it into a podcast for. So, thanks for for joining us today. Oh, sure. And, you know, I think we'll start off here, and it's the question of, uh, and I'll, I'll have a link to. I'll update some of this data, and I'll put it on on the site. Uh, I'll put it in the show notes. But it's the question of: Do presidents really matter when it comes to investment returns? And and one of the things that that we've been doing is we've been looking at, um, I, I guess we could turn into do presidents and the Senate and the house. And, and I'll start here and then I'll sort of turn over to you for some thoughts. But, uh, 1923 through August of 2020. And why did I only go 23? Well, I did this by hand, you know, going, going back and looking at some of this stuff and, you know, uh, the 1800s, you had the wigs, <laughs> but Triple R, yeah, I mean, Triple R, Republican president, Republican Senate, Republican House. It's happened 15% of the time in the last 97 years. Uh, average annual return, 16.5%. And Triple Ds, Democratic majorities across the board. And, uh, you know, just under 14%. That's actually been 35% of the time. Uh, Spencer, does the president really matter? I mean, I think this says otherwise. Right. Um the president matters to the extent that the president is an embodiment of ideals and policies and uh, desires. And can those policies and ideals and desires be converted into legislation? Can they actually affect uh, the country in various ways? And in order to do that, of course, they have to have uh, a compliant Congress. Interestingly, though, I think a compliant Congress is not necessarily one of their own party. Um, In many ways, uh, divided government uh, is is best, has been best uh, for the markets. Wall Street certainly likes divided government um, because – they feel like that nothing will get done or nothing drastic in either direction. And that maintains a status quo that, uh, that the uh, economy and, and markets um, in, in most times are just fine with. Uh, but if you look at you know, when a party has controlled everything, you would think that it would lend itself to a result that is on one extreme or another. But as your um, Analysis shows, and I found this to be fascinating, there's not much difference. There's really not. There really isn't. And we could look at sample size and we could say, you know, you look at 
this construct and and to give the the listeners a little context on this uh, there have been periods where it's been one or the other for quite some time uh, 1933 give or take a few years all the way until uh, let's see you know really the the 50s mm-hmm. uh, you know Roosevelt certainly had all three had had super majorities but then we look at you know, some of the other times, Coolidge uh, looks like during his presidency. But then we have the other ones where I think, you know, you pointed to in a prior conversation, Eisenhower, right. uh, Republican president, mm-hmm. and then Clinton. Uh, I think all of his years, he had Republican Senate and Republican House. I could be wrong on that. And, and both constructs um, were pretty good for the markets. Right. I mean, when you think about, you know, so what would maybe consider a golden era of certainly a peace and prosperity. You think of the, you know, the 1950s post-war era under Eisenhower. And uh, you look back at that as being just an enormously successful presidency, a successful period in American history. And Eisenhower um, had a Democrat Congress, Senate and House, his entire eight years in office. And yet, uh, you know, things uh, still got done. Um, I don't know <laughs> if they were everything Eisenhower wanted or everything the GOP wanted. Certainly not. Uh, but it was a productive period. And a modern analog to that, as you rightly point out, would be the uh, Clinton era. When you look back on it, you know, Clinton's uh, market returns are, um, are frankly staggering when you place them against other presidents. But, you know, there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, and market returns aren't necessarily the um, providence of, of uh, an executive, of a chief executive. Uh, I think that they can help in that arena. They can certainly help in that arena and, and create conditions where a market can thrive. And they can also create conditions where a market can be, uh, can be stifled. Um, though I don't think they have the capacity in and of themselves or through policy to completely eradicate uh, a strong market or to uplift a, a, um, a truly bear market. But Clinton, uh, yeah, had Republicans the entire time. Actually, first two years he had Democrats, which is another point. Yeah. That sometimes that doesn't hold. Yeah. And, and, uh, but, uh, didn't get a lot done. Obama, for example, had, uh, um, you know, a full Democrat uh, slate uh, early on and uh, came in the office uh, with a tremendous mandate and was a very dynamic uh, uh, candidate and had uh, ideas that were uh, as large, uh, I think some would say, as, as what FDR had. And um, he was not able, with even with his congressional majority, to enact, I think, some of the things that he'd wanted. So having a majority is no guarantee of success. You know, you bring up that point. It, it seems like um, in the in the recent history, uh, I guess, you know, you look at uh, the first two years of Obama where he had, you know, all three. Um, it's kind of similar to, I mean, Trump is only, he's running for re-election, obviously, but the first two years uh, had the majority. And, you know, it, this doesn't go into the margin of majority, but it, it's almost like each of them got one shot. And Obama got healthcare done. Trump got taxes. Right. You know, the, the big legislation. But it is interesting that uh, with uh, with Obama and with Clinton, uh, the first two years, on the way, congr- you know, House and some of the elections work, 
you can have this for two years, but then you have the, the midterm, right? You know, that, that sort of turned. If you look at the Clinton era, and, and you know, I'm old enough to have a very good you know, memory of all of this, uh, Clinton uh, was more productive on a legislative front after um, Gingrich and the Contract with America cohort took control of the Congress. He was more productive with it. Why? Well, you know, Clinton enacted most of the contract uh, with America legislation. Um, you know, he had uh, Dick Morris whispering in his ear saying, you know, this is pretty good stuff. Clinton was a, you know, a Southern governor, always had his finger in the air, consummate politician, and, you know, was not, was a more perhaps middle of the road by today's standards and said, okay, but moreover, I'll enact these things. Sure. I'll do your things. Great. We did them all. Now I have some things I'd like to do. Let's do those. And that met with a lot of resistance and Clinton said, oh no, well, that's not going to do at all um, that you're uh, hammering uh, my effort. I was in good faith. I did your stuff. We're not going to do my stuff. And of course, then um, they ran on the do nothing Congress, you know, turn them into, into bogeymen. And uh, not long after coming around, Gingrich and his types uh, found themselves, um, you know, uh, marginalized. Uh, the majority wasn't uh, uh, lost, but it was enormously decreased. Give you a couple numbers here, Spencer, and, and uh, I'll just, I won't go all the way back, but give you some, uh, you know, Obama, uh, the average annual, or no, I'm sorry, the compounded annual. Okay, so let me, little little market speak here. When we, th- when we say simple average, it's just you take up all the returns, you divide by that. But the compounded growth rate is what an investor would actually experience, right? You know, you, you comp. Now, um, the reason why I didn't do compounded growth rates for, let's say, when it was triple R or triple D is you can't, you can't compound when you have 1950 and 1980, right? So I'll just give you some compounded annual growth rates here. Uh, Trump through, I think I did this last week, uh, plus 12.7% annualized. Obama had a, a compounded, a, a CAGR, C A G R, compounded growth rate of 14.28%. George W. and negative uh, 2.86. We'll talk about him, though, and, and, and timing. We talk a little later about timing. of. But Clinton was plus 17. H. Bush, 15 and a half. Reagan, 14. Uh, Carter, surprisingly, was plus 11 and a half. Uh, and then you had, you know, Nixon, Ford. I don't know how to, I mean. That's a, that's a, that's a very tough one to reconcile. Yeah. I mean, Ford had plus 30% in two years, but Nixon, you know. Um, Kennedy and Johnson, you know, we'll call it around, you know, average of the two around 11%. Um, of course, Hoover during the depression. Anyway, so I, I think it goes to our point. Um, and it also goes to timing, but a lot of these presidents, uh, are similar, although GDP growth, um, Obama was about 1.6 Trump. Well, Trump's going to change, but this is through July. 2.3, but Reagan and Clinton are really the, the comparables. 3.9 for Clinton, Reagan 3.5. Um, but anyway, I mean, you know, it's really similar uh, across a lot of these presidents, but I got to be honest. I mean, if I'm a president, I want to be taking over at the end of a recession or I don't want to be take over. I mean, George W. Bush takes over in January of what, 2001? Um, 
you know, <laughs> at the, at the beginning of a recession. Um, but yeah, I mean, but I, I, to your point, I think a lot of these folks, uh, the results are really similar. By the way, markets go up over time. They, they do. Yeah. Mar- markets, uh, as you know, are affected by the con, the, uh, the concept or the, uh, notion of, of positive drift, right? Uh, markets are affected by positive drift and negative uh, skew. And if markets weren't affected by positive drift, if that did not exist, um, you know, the first massive uh, collapse and correction that occurred in 1667 would have been the last. Uh, that would have been it. Uh, but that's not how markets operate. And they do go up over time. What I found interesting of all these numbers, Carter's numbers are not nearly as bad as you would think they would be. And uh, there are other things that, you know, just, those, what, those numbers, of course, don't tell the whole story because, you know, inflation was very high and uh, confidence was low and people felt like they were in a, a tremendous uh, malaise, I think was the term was used back then. Um, but just the GDP numbers, frankly, aren't that bad. Yeah. And those are real GDP. So for our listeners, that's uh, if you have 10% inflation and GDP grows 10%, your real growth is zero. That's real real GDP growth at 3.3%. Yeah, that was astonishing to me anyway. I know it was to you. Yeah. For, so Carter was doing a 3.3% GDP and was um, ejected from office by the American voters. Um, Obama, now we look back on it, of course, doing about 2%. I mean, one, one, seven, if you round up, yeah. <laughs> Two was perhaps generous. 1.7% 1, 1. Uh, and was, uh, was reelected. And, and they often refer to the fact that he was the architect of one of the greatest economic recoveries ever, which the numbers, you know, I don't care what kind of party you're in, but the numbers just don't bear that out. Isn't that fascinating that, that Carter, now Carter only had four years, Obama had eight, but Carter's numbers, um, not quite as high of a, a compounded growth rate, but. By the way, it's also interesting if we pair, so forget pairing Nixon and Ford. If you take Ford's final two years, which is, you know, 2.6 GDP growth and 30% annualized. And again, it's, it's his sample size is really small. But if you do sort of the lineage Ford Carter, that's a pretty good five and a half years. It's fascinating, right? I mean, how inflation is 15%. Right. That really, the, the if you if you took the six year stretch of Ford Carter, um, even with inflation being in double digits, um, the results, um, frankly, were not bad at all. In fact, uh, the return years, uh, the S and P uh, under Ford, although again a short uh, small sample size, was um, incredible. <laughs> uh, so. Um, and Carter, you know, not, uh, as great, but not bad. No, no. Of course, then you, you have, um, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, cause we had, so Reagan has the recession really early on in his term. And a lot of people forget that, but there was a recession early on. A bad one and Volcker jacked up interest rate, jacked up is not the right word. He raised interest rates, right. Uh, to, to beat inflation. He did that 82 Interest rates crested. I mean, you could have bought a 30-year bond at 15%. But you actually look at Ford, Carter, Reagan, H. Bush, and you're talking about, you know, obviously we had really bad recessions. Carter had high unemployment, high inflation. Um, but yeah, that was sort of, you mentioned Eisenhower. 
from a market standpoint, Ford through, actually Ford through Clinton. I mean, you had a, which by the way, it was the greatest bull market ever in history, which is 82 to, to 99. Um, the market went up a thousand percent. People think, that's interesting you bring that up because I think people look back at the current or look at the current environment and they say, well, you know, the market, even after the recent action um, in Q1 of this year, uh, that things are uh, getting back on track and this is still a, a, a great, you know, the, uh, the greatest bull market ever. That's not exactly true. I mean, how do you measure these things? Uh, by longevity? Well, it's, it, 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 uh, it's not, even the, uh, not even the longest uh, in, in U.S. history. People forget that period. You just quoted, I don't know that we'll ever have a period like that again. Maybe we will, but the one we're on right now is nowhere near as uh, virulent as uh, the 82 to 2000 period. Oh, I full agreement. And, and uh, I don't have it handy, but I, you know, cyclical, uh, there's a difference between, you know, measuring from the trough, the low to the, the peak, the high, but you look at when you exceeded a prior peak and there's nothing even close to, uh, to that period. No, it was, uh, I, I don't know. There's repeatable now, of course, along the way people say, well, you know, they want to chop it up into more discrete pieces and say, well, the crash of 87, you know, truncated a bull market and then another one began. And okay, yes, that's, that goes to the cyclic activity you spoke of, but on a, a larger, you know, backed out macro view, you could easily say, you know, this period is one large bull phase with three significant mean reversions in 87, 2000 and 2001 uh, which is, you know, more or less how that played out. Um, and then we entered a new bull phase, you know, around, oh, 2009 after the final very large reversion in 2008. But when taken together, um, as scary as, you know, 80 of all those, by the way, 87 was the worst, um, as far as actual damage done and everything else, uh, even though, uh, it may not have been the largest one of the larger percentage drops it was by far and i think market wise uh, and economically the the, uh, the biggest hammer that fell but if you look at 87 2000 2001 and 2008 those are natural mean reversions inside that that incredible period that thousand plus percent period Th those are are to be expected those those types of reversions and now we were on a new one for the last 10 years but it's not a thousand percent run over the last ten years, no, but it, but again, that that run was uh, different constructs of presidents, houses, senates, and I know one of the other things we wanted to uh, to get to as well is there's some interesting anomalies with and and maybe and they're more recent, so I don't know what this means going forward, but I'll, I'll throw out some numbers for the listeners, and then we can sort of you know have some discussion on it. Uh, a Republican president, a Democratic Senate, and a Republican House. Again, I only went back, I say only 97 years, but it's happened twice. Uh, George W. Bush, 01, 02, uh, negative 16%, almost 17% um, annualized return. Let me give you some other ones here. Obviously, that was not, you know, anyway, recession, 9-11, 2002. But then you go, uh, President Obama had four, this has only happened four times where you had a democratic president, democratic Senate, Republican house. And then I, 
you know, just looking at some of the other constructs, um, those, those are not, well, here's, this happened 10 times. Um, I'll call, I'll just refer to RRD. Uh, Reagan had a lot of those. Uh, Trump currently has it. And then uh, the DRR. But here's one that's never, well, I shouldn't say never happened because it, it, you have to go back to like Grover Cleveland in uh, 1885 or 87. Uh, but if we did have a Democratic president, let's say Biden wins and the Republicans keep the Senate and the Democrats, assuming we keep the House, that has not happened since 1885, 87. That's because those, those types of things, the, I think the environment that has to create that, it's, it's, um, those are, you have a national will or a desire that has elevated one party into the executive and one party mostly into the legislative, but you have um, regional issues that have um, kept one or the other house uh, in the hands of the out party. And I think that that could be the driving you know, reason we see that and don't see it very often is because, you know, in many ways, um, you know, state, federal, local issues sometimes in certain general elections find themselves in alignment, but not always. Yeah, no, I, I think so. And I think, uh, yeah, it, it's, it, I mean, we have to go to margin and things like that. Um, all right. So let's, let's talk about, I think we, you know, we went through some of the historical things and like I said, I'll post this in the show notes and I was, I was surprised by some of it, not surprised by others. Um, but I, I do think it's interesting that if Republicans hold the house, it would be like somebody said, well, we'll get to the Senate later. You know, do I think that's going to happen? I said, well, um, it, it would be the first time in a while. Let's talk about the professor Alan Lickman uh, came up with this thing. He, he wrote a book, I think it was in the eighties and I'll sort of explain what this is and then we'll, we'll go through it. I've got these. Uh, so he, he writes a book. He does a lot of research. I think he's at American university. I could be wrong on that. I think, in, I, think uh, I think that's correct. Yeah. Which is out right in or outside DC. And so, uh, he writes this book and called the 13 keys to the white house. And what he does is he has these 13 things that he looks at. And if you have an incumbent, if six or more are false, so like, for example, I don't want to go into it yet, but midterm gains in the house, if that's false, the incumbent doesn't get that check mark, the, the challenger gets it. And so he, and he's, I've, I've listened to interviews on this. Um, he said it's for the popular vote. Um, I don't know if he's changed anything for the electoral college because, uh, and last time what he did was he went through, he, I, I read an interview and he predicted, uh, uh, Trump would win. Uh, although I think one of the, well, we'll get to the keys. So we haven't done, you know, I gotta be honest, uh, I I'm familiar with these. I know generally, but we'll have some discussion about, um, you know, some fine points on this. So um, Spencer, let's let's just go into it. Let's uh, let's go through the keys and let's try and <laughs> let's try and come up with who's going to win this thing based on the keys, and then we can. We I want to look at the map too a little bit later, but so mid one of the first keys is midterm gains in the house, which means uh, did did the sitting president, so did Trump's party pick up more seats in the midterm elections? The midterms were two years ago. 
Spencer, obviously, this is no. Yeah, clearly. Uh, no, they did not. And so you have to put uh, that in, in Biden's column, according to this method. Okay. Uh, no party contest to the incumbent. And, and I guess that probably means like a, a Pat Buchanan or a, a Reagan when Ford was running type deal, right? Right. There, there, there was no credible challenger uh, to the president. No. So that, that, that's one for Trump, I guess. Yeah, that's one for Trump. Am I right though? Isn't it Buchanan and Reagan were the two? Well, the, the, as far as the spoilers go, if you want to talk about spoilers, um, there were there were three major spoilers. Um, uh, well, I would well I was going to include Ross Perot, but we're talking about primary politics here. Primary. Yeah, uh, we're talking about the president. Like when Clinton was office, no Democrat went and, and seriously challenged him. Yeah. Okay. So Pat Buchanan was certainly the major uh, spoiler uh, in recent memory. I mean, he even won um, New Hampshire, as I recall. I think so. I think that's right. And then, but Reagan against Reagan, Reagan, Reagan against Ford. I mean, uh, so Reagan, uh, yeah, Reagan and Buchanan were the two main challengers that I can think of. The Democrats really haven't had any credible challengers. Was Kennedy? Um President uh, Ted Kennedy, did he run against Carter in the primary? He did run against Carter in the primary, and then he refused to endorse him. Oh, maybe there's something to this this 13 case. Okay, so so we've got one versus one. Okay, I'll keep I'll keep track of this as we're going. Um, do, <laughs> uh, does the person running for election are they the incumbent? Obviously, Trump is the incumbent. Power of incumbency is fantastic. Um, there's so many advantages as I think people saw, uh, last night, if, if, if you watched, uh, the RNC, uh, being the incumbent has tremendous advantage, you know, Logan, potential Logan act violations aside, um, you have, uh, enormous power as the incumbent. Uh, and so you, you know, if, if these, I, I know they're equally weighted, I think, I think there, there's no, no one has more weight than the other. But if you were to weight these things, incumbency has to be near the top. Yeah, for any number of reasons, you you essentially not only are unopposed normally in your primaries, we just talked about that, but as you said, uh, last night, uh, Trump got to give a speech uh, at the, the South Lawn with fireworks over D.C. Anyway, so yeah, obviously incumbency. Um, here's one. Uh, so no third party candidate is predicted to get 5% or more of the vote. Right. And I, I think that's, uh, that's true. And in, in, in recent memory, I think this only happened twice. Uh, in 1980, going back a little bit, John Anderson, who was the libertarian candidate or the independent party, not libertarian, I should, excuse me, independent party candidate at the time received nearly 10% of the vote in 1980. Um, which was quite interesting. Uh, I forgot about that, Spencer. That's right. I remember him in the debates. He had the black rim glasses, right? Yeah. Yeah, he was. Yeah, kind of very professorial. But Anderson received a substantial portion of the, of the vote. And then, of course, in 92, uh, you had uh, H. Ross Perot. Perot is fascinating. And the fact, God, we could do a whole <laughs> podcast just on that. I don't want to go too far down that path. But if people forget, he dropped out of the race. And then came back in like it, <laughs> he did. He left and then he came back uh, with pie charts and everything. 
Um, but that was a very interesting, interesting uh, development. And did he, people say, did he cost Bush the election? Well, Clinton was elected on a plurality. He got 42% of the overall vote, which was enough through the Electoral College to see him elevated with a substantial Electoral College win. And so, again, Obviously, you don't need a majority of the popular vote to do well in the Electoral College, and that is absolutely by design. But certainly the fact that he got more than 5%, uh, in this case, I think we both agree, uh, well, there is a libertarian candidate. I don't think most people know uh, her name. Um, I'd like to see more people in debates, and, uh, but no, Trump, Trump certainly has uh, that key as being true. All right. Um, Maybe we'll come back to the economy because I think those there's some open-endedness there. So incumbent administration affects major policy change. Uh, have we seen major policy change by Trump? Taxes, right? I mean, that's the big one. Uh, yeah, tax, tax, yeah, exactly. Huge, huge tax reform, uh, corporate and, uh, and uh, personal. Uh, mostly, I think, Corporate was the one that was the most impactful. You know, prior to Trump taking office, uh, corporate taxes were 36.5%, which were the highest in the world, uh, which is why you had you know, companies like Apple and several others creating these bizarre you know, offshore entities in Ireland um, as a, a type of tax haven to avoid paying those taxes. Well, people keep saying we want them to pay their fair share, but that's fine except that when you're large enough and powerful enough and have the resources, you can escape paying taxes if you want to, uh, as all of these companies um, demonstrated. But when you lower the taxes to a point where it's no longer feasible to do that, you know, revenues theoretically can escalate because there's no, there's no benefit in constructing these offshore entities and the money returns, returns home. But Anyway, I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole there. I'm sorry about that. But the fact is that that was a huge shift. The, the corporate tax, lowering of the corporate tax the, to the point they did was uh, an enormous uh, shift over the last eight years. Yeah, I would, I would agree. Uh, we give that check mark to, to Trump. Um, no scandal. So, <laughs> well, without debating... Yeah, we could, whether whether or not it was uh, there, I would I would give this to Biden. I would say this is uh, this is false. Uh, he did get impeached. He did, and, and no matter what you may think or what any, if you're a Trump supporter and you think it was all all concocted, uh, if you're a Democrat and you think Trump is the worst thing to happen to Western democracy, the fact of the matter is that he was impeached, um, and I don't think that's so lightly shaken off. I would, and I would say the same thing if we were doing this for Bill Clinton, I would, I would go the same way. And you could argue whether or not that was, uh, anyway, so let, we'll, we both agree there. No foreign military failure. I, I think I'd give this to Trump. How about you? Uh, I think so. Uh, in fact, they've had, I suppose some successes. He's reduced, uh, the U S footprint, and has had success um, on a few fronts overseas without uh, embroiling the U.S. in new large-scale entanglements. So, yeah. Foreign military success. You know, originally, 
I was going to say Biden, because, you know, we think about foreign military success, it's, it's winning a war, winning something. Um, th- there are people who point out to me, though, that uh, ISIS was, uh, you know, pretty much, uh, you don't, I don't think that's an ongoing concern anymore. But I think there's some debate here. You know, he didn't, I don't know, what, do, what, do, what say you? Well, uh, they, by their own admission, <laughs> certainly uh, eradicated ISIS as far as we can tell. I, I don't know if you have driven over sure, but seemingly they've been at least greatly reduced, marginalized. Um, they are reducing uh, the commitment to uh, Afghanistan. The commitment in Iraq has been uh, completely withdrawn. And... Uh, They've avoided, you know, sending troops to Syria, uh, engaging in other places where we might have done so uh, in the past. And I think that, you know, he promised to do those things, and and it speaks well in that regard. Um, But larger than that, there haven't been any new large-scale entanglements. And I think that is very important. I think um, think Trump was right— to run on the fact that, uh, and to take the position that the U.S. is just weary of of these external conflicts, say nothing of the fact that they are extremely costly in lives and um, money. I think it's you bring up a good point. It, it's I get the thirteen keys, and obviously I get where Professor Lichtman's coming from, but it's almost like. If you didn't get into any wars or didn't have any entanglements, then that would be a negative. That is a little. I, I don't. That one. Uh, I don't know that I agree with. I think if you uh, well, look back at Eisenhower. I mean, they you would say, well, Korea. Yes, that was the beginning of, you know, not letting the dominoes fall, but um, you know, largely you avoid. And, and Clinton really. Uh, there were operations in Kosovo, but they were quite in the Balkans. They were relatively small scale. You avoid. Uh, if you avoid nasty foreign entanglements uh, and nation building, that's the big one. Nation, if you can avoid nation building and, and foreign entanglements, that's a, a positive, I think. So you're you're giving this to Trump. I was when I originally scratched this down on an envelope. I said I'll give it to Biden by the technical definition. But I, I honestly think it belongs in the Trump column. Okay, I'm gonna mark. I'm gonna mark one and one. We'll we'll see if that's. <laughs> Uh, I, I think you might've convinced me though, but we'll come back to that. Uh, no social unrest. Um, I'm going to say, obviously there's obviously, yes, I, I would give this to Biden. It's, it's false. Uh, charismatic incumbent. And then I'll also throw in, uh, or a national hero. So like Eisenhower was a national hero, you know, you brought him up. Um, I, I mean, originally Lickman gave this to Trump. Uh, he, he, because he said, uh, and and it goes to an uncharismatic challenge. But let's start the. Um, this time, I heard an interview with him, and he actually did not give it to Trump. Really, this time he gave it to him last time. But I'm still, you know, I mean, he's he's a showman. Yeah, I mean, char- charismatic. I mean, is he particularly inspiring? Yes or no. I mean, it depends on whether you're a fan of his, his tweeting or not, I guess. That could, you know, take it into it. But um, Trump knows how to build a cult of personality. And he has certainly done that. And maybe that's not the same thing as charisma necessarily. 
but I think that um, I would still put this in Trump's column. If perhaps only by default, because um, Joe Biden is, um, no, no matter your politics, you can't say that Joe Biden is particularly electrifying. No, and that gets to our next one. I think we both agree. Well, I, I'm going to stay with Professor Lichtman's original assessment um, from last election. You are so we'll we'll give that one to Trump. Uncharismatic challenger, yes. Uh, Joe Biden, you know, President Obama, by all accounts, was very charismatic, uh, good speaker. You know, I remember him in Denver accepting the Democratic National. Uh, you know, uh, right. DNC's nomination. I, I, I was standing in my kitchen. We had some friends over and we're all watching the election returns back in 2004. And he made that speech. Yeah. And I said, um, that guy is going to run for president soon. Uh, and. Oh, the one before. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And it turned out, well, he, was, he, he did, but you look at the other people in the party and you're like, wow. This guy is a, a very clear standout. Um, and, uh, you know, we all know what happened after that. But, uh, you know, Biden is, you know, whether or not uh, Biden has slowed down in any capacity, I don't know if he has or he hasn't. Um, but even Joe Biden of 10 years ago, even Joe Biden uh, as vice president, um, not particularly inspiring. He's always been folksy. I think he's always been kind of homespun, sort of a down home kind of charm. He's probably good in small groups, maybe one-on-one, but he's never had the capacity to move groups of people. He's never been electrifying and Trump and, and Trump can occasionally be electrifying. All right. So we'll, we'll say an uncharismatic challenger. Let's go to the economy now. And this is where very tough. This is very tough. <laughs> well, so let me set this up. Okay, there, there's strong short-term economy. In other words, it is the economy in a recession. And then here's where I, I I would need to do some more digging. But some people look at this and say, is the economy in recession on election day? Um, just to set up for folks listening. Uh, currently, we had negative GDP growth in Q1. We have you know big negative GDP growth. In Q2, so on an annualized basis, minus 32 percent or something like that. So it dropped eight percent. Um, Q3, the Atlanta GDP now has an estimate of plus 26 percent. So that's uh, you know uh, what is that divided by four? Yeah, that's like seven. It's like six and a half percent. And then, um, and then the other one is strong long-term economy. So first of all, and strong long-term economy, I believe in. In an interview, Professor Lichtman says, has GDP per capita, so that's the GDP growth per, per you know, people, uh, to put it simply, higher in, the, in, in incumbent's first term than in the previous two terms. So let's start with short term, though, because... Uh, Here's my problem with, with, with this. Yes, the numbers are bad. <laughs> They're very, very bad. Um, but why are they bad? Well, they're, they're bad. They are, they are not bad through systemic failure. They are not 
bad as the result of inappropriate policy at the Federal Reserve or through uh, uh, legislative or executive action. Um, they are bad because they were self-inflicted. Um, we didn't know how bad the hit was going to be, but we knew it was going to be substantial. Um, things were humming along very well. And at, if you're Donald Trump, the worst conceivable time, you have to enact a national shutdown the like of which has never been seen and the result of which was at the time unknowable. Well, now we know it was pretty awful, uh, but it was all voluntary and done for the greater good. Now that doesn't change the fact that businesses were shuttered. People were put out of work. Um, it's, it's, it's bad in that regard. Um, so is the strong, is a short-term economy strong? <sighs> no. But is it recovering? Well, if the market is a leading indicator of the underlying economy, which it isn't always, but if it's any indicator um, and corporate earnings have remained strong, the large multinationals have remained strong, stocks are surging. Um, I think people were looking down the road that things are going to get better. Things, you know, I, if I could put this in the middle, I would. <laughs> it's hard. It's very difficult. If there, if, there, if, there been, if there had been a blunder, right, a policy blunder, yeah. I mean, I think, I think you could give it to Biden, but I don't think that's been the case. I think you make a compelling argument. Um, I, would, I would say I gave this one to Biden, but I, but I don't know. Like if, if Q3, yeah, if – if Q3, I mean, for years, this is going to mess up our our economic charts, right? This this will blow away the scale. It's just going to, you know, you're going to have to do logarithmic. Or, I know. I know. Um, you won't be able to. Yeah. It's going to, the dip's going to be too big. Well, I'm going to give it to Biden. Um, you might give this to, to Trump. I, I think on the strict definition, I have to give it to Biden. Yeah, that, and that's probably true. I think in reality, it belongs in the middle. But we can't do that. We have to go one way or the other. So I guess this has to go in the Biden column. Long-term economy, um, here's where it gets a little bit interesting. And so I ran the numbers and prior to uh, coronavirus and, and Q1. So if I just did this at the end of 2019, Trump's annualized GDP per capita at that point was growing at 8%. Uh, Obama for his eight years was something like, you know, plus two and a half percent, I forget. The The world is different. And now um, the GDP per capita growth has slipped below the prior two terms in Obama. Now, again, I don't know, do I have, if we get the surge in Q3, uh, so Q3, by the way, obviously is July, August, September. Um. This one, I'm more like you on the short term, where I'm kind of like, I don't know, and it, 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 he could actually regain that, that growth mark. I think if it's fair to give the short term to Biden. I think it's debatable, but I think by the spirit of how these things are assessed, that has to go in his column. Uh, the strong long term economy, I think, 
absolutely belongs in the Trump column. Whether or not it helps him is a different story. Um, but I think it belongs in his column. Let's see where we had. We had a tie on foreign military success. So, okay, so let me count these up. And that last one we did could be the determinant. So if, if that shifted to Biden, he would have six. Uh, if not, he would have five. So I don't know if we, I don't know if we really, it's a coin flip, I think. (laughs) I think that's honestly where things are right now. Yeah. Uh, You and I, you mentioned early on that we had a very long discussion uh, in 16 of what was going to happen. And it was just a couple days before the election, as I recall. And uh, we made some very good points and we're, we're very uh, insightful, I'm sure, and very witty, but uh, we both drew the wrong conclusion. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And I, I will say Professor Lickman did predict Trump last time, but I believe he was saying Gary Johnson would get 5% or more of the vote because at the time he was polling at 10%. Uh, but the reality is for a, uh, actually, let's not, let's not go back on that one, but it's just, I, I think if you go back and, and redo it and maybe I'll do that in my spare time, I'm not sure if his keys would have said uh, Trump. Cause I think, he had uh, a third-party candidate getting more than 5% of the vote, which would have put it in the challenger's column. But okay. Um, I mean, from these keys, I think, you know, it looks like a coin flip. I think so. Uh, I think so. Now, look, um, you know, these are interesting things to consider. And uh, I just feel, and I know he has not set it up this way, but I feel some of these carry far more weight than others, um, honestly, with with voters. Uh, of course, the economy is always the, you know, Clinton knew it, and it's always the, the, the foremost for people. And this one is a tough read. It's a very tough read. Spencer, let's talk about, um, in the remaining time, I want to go to the electoral map, uh, 270 to win. So if you want to do this at home, it's 270 to win.com. And what they do is when you go in there, um, there's different colors on the map. So it's really deep blue. It's really deep red, lighter red means leans. Uh, and then you have these brown states. For those of you scoring at home, uh, Derek and I have been using this since it looked like something made by Yahoo. Um, <laughs> been around since the nineties. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, so I go on here and their consensus. So I didn't make, we didn't make any changes and you can change Oh, sure. So they have currently, so you need 270 electoral votes to win. Right now they have Biden with 278 before we even change any of the undecideds. That's, uh, that's tough. Let's go through this. So let's go through the undecideds. Um, they have Arizona, the, that funky one or two electoral votes in Maine and Nebraska, uh, yeah, Ohio, North Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. And basically, um, for, for our purposes, what I've, what I did was I said, let's see what the path would be based upon this. If you gave all of those to Republicans, um, including, oh God, I gotta, there we go. I'm going to change 
here, I'll change Maine to all blue and I'll change Nebraska to all red. Um, it would be 279 to 259, meaning based upon this map, uh, Trump would have to turn one state. If Okay, so let's let's turn Wisconsin. And if you turn Wisconsin, it is a tie, <laughs> which by the way, would mean the Senate would pick the vice president and the House would pick the president. Yes, great. That would be great. I would love to see something like that happen. But uh, yeah, right now the numbers, like electoral numbers, don't favor um, Trump. And I would point out a couple of things. Uh, last time, uh, at this very same time, um, you know, the numbers were very favorable toward Hillary Clinton, uh, and they remained very favorable up until the day before the election. And you and I had that conversation and we said, well, she's not going to win by the margin they think she's going to win by. However, uh, she is going to win because there's just not enough magic. Trump can't draw the Royal flush, which he would have to do. And that just doesn't happen. Uh, we thought he would do better than the polls said, but we really didn't think he was going to win. In this, in this case, I would say uh, right now, if you look back on a relative basis, Biden is in worse shape than Clinton was at this time. Oh. So right now, and historically, Hillary was up 10 points nationally, and she was up, I don't know, six or seven points, maybe more, in swing states. Biden uh, is only up around 6% nationally. A lot of new polls have come out, which have uh, moved that number down. Of course, on, you and I both know that when you see a candidate, whoever they are, up plus 8, 9, 10 nationally, that never holds. That, that would be uh, a, a, uh, a Nixonian-level victory over um, you know, McGovern. That doesn't happen uh, in the modern, modern era. So, uh, but point is, Biden's in a worse position than Clinton was uh, at this time uh, last year. Now, maybe uh, Biden's support is better than Clinton's. I don't know. Uh, turns out Clinton's support was soft, and they couldn't, and people didn't turn out. Um, my point is that if you look at some of these states, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania are uh, the most likely states, uh, maybe Minnesota, though I think it's out of reach. Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, Trump can make serious headway. But I have to add a caveat to that. He, uh, Biden, the only state in which Biden's doing better than Hillary right now, at this time, during the election cycle, is Florida. Well, if you're Donald Trump, if you can't win Florida, it's all academic. Yeah, and we, to your point, we actually assumed all the toss-ups were going to go to Trump. Obviously, if if Arizona goes to uh, Biden, uh, it, it's it's a royal flush plus that that Trump would have to. He would he would need to pull Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin again. Um, I honestly don't think that can happen. Well, what, what do I know? Uh, I didn't think it could happen last time. Um, a lot of this is so tenuous, and the polls, I think, uh, are to be any poll, regardless of whom it favors or, or, or who is, uh, generates the poll, needs to be taken with a grain of salt for this very reason, for, for, the, for these reasons, I should say. First of all, I think people 
are not being are refusing to be polled now more than ever. So I think it's harder to find people to to poll. Second, even if you do poll them and they're likely voters and say, "Oh yes, I'm going to go vote for Biden or I'm going to go vote for Trump." They don't. <laughs> they don't go vote. Uh, they stay home. Um and that's, I think, that it's a phenomenon that's happening. You know, polls have not been worth a great deal the last several cycles. Um, and, and voter turnout has been really low because don't forget that Trump won last time with fewer votes than Mitt Romney got. Interesting. Yeah. Well, it, you bring up a good point because it's always um, – I've listened to really smart political people on, on every side of the aisle. And they've always said when people talk about trying to get voters who don't normally vote and win them, it's a lost cause. You have to drive your base. And um, the Libertarian Party, um, a lot of people say, you know, why don't you go after the people who don't vote? And, and the head of the Libertarian Party said, that's, that's not the way this works. You, you, have, to, <laughs> you have to get the people who, who support you to get out. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think I look at this, it, the electoral map as they've got the consensus, obviously they already have Biden winning. Um, and I don't, you know, I think Arizona is just from, I, I, every time I turn on the TV, it's 17 ads in a row. I'm making, you know, I'm being a little sarcastic. Uh, so I know we're in play. Being in Texas, we are insulated from such things. Yeah, Texas two seventy to win gives you gives it uh, it's lighter shade, but so I don't know. I last time you and I had this conversation, and and I agree. Um, I said I didn't think that I thought Hillary had the path. Hillary uh, Clinton had the path. I didn't think Donald Trump had the the path on the electoral map. The interesting thing is Hillary had multiple paths, um, and and the fact that. Trump was able to capture the so-called blue wall states, shut them all down. Well, this time I think he has to, Trump would have to win Wisconsin, all the, all the other ones and that vote in Maine that he won last time. And then he can, but, but what, what I think will happen, I think Trump's path to victory, in my opinion, um, if, if there is one, maybe there isn't, but if there is one, uh, it is this. You have to have Florida. Okay. Florida is really in contention and you have to have it. He's going to win North Carolina and Georgia and Ohio, despite the fact that, you know, those are all margin of error races right now, but Trump wins all three of those States. I, th I think Trump has a very good chance to win Wisconsin. That has to happen. You must keep, you must turn Wisconsin. And I think, the election will turn if Trump can do those things. Believe it or not, the, to me, the election turns in Nevada. Nevada, Nevada's uh, well. It's light blue. I think. I think if you, if you can turn Wisconsin, you can turn Nevada. And if you are able, because I think Colorado and New Mexico are too gone for Trump. Virginia, Colorado, New Mexico, probably Minnesota, Michigan. You really couldn't do. Maybe you could do Pennsylvania, but I think the resources you could spend in Pennsylvania, of course, Pennsylvania solves all your problems. I don't know that it's possible, but I think Nevada is possible. And I think that if you do that, if you are able to, to hang on to Florida, 
you turn Wisconsin and you turn Nevada, you're at 275. All right. I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I have a prediction that I, I, I think it's, I think it's closer than people think. <laughs> yeah. I'm not predicting that. I'm saying that to me, if I were to look at an electoral strategy, I think that's the only one that's viable because I don't think he's going to win Michigan or Minnesota or Pennsylvania or Maine or New Hampshire or Virginia or Colorado or New Mexico. So that really narrows the path that you get to take. And, and, the, and he may not win Florida and it's going to be a, an early night. If Joe Biden wins Florida at, at nine thirty PM Eastern time, the election's over. That's it. Before we come back with final thoughts, uh, the Senate is the other one. Um, I'll go through this quick. Uh, there are, obviously we talked about that construct. Let's say Biden wins, Republicans hold the Senate. Democrats, I don't think there's any debate, are going to hold the House. Um, there are a few, there's probably six different Senate seats that are up for grabs. Um, and 270 to win has Montana, Colorado, Idaho, not Idaho, Iowa, North Carolina, one of them in Georgia, Maine. Uh, they've got Arizona. I live in Arizona. I, w- I would just, I would guess that McSally probably loses um, just from the fact that she hasn't won an election yet, right? So she lost the cinema. Um, I think it's from what I see here, I, uh, given that. Um, but I don't know. I, I think, you know, of course, if it's 50-50 and Biden wins, they get the tiebreaker. Um, what are your thoughts on the Senate? I think that uh, the Senate is going to go to the Democrats. And I think even if Trump wins in my crazy Nevada scenario, or some variant thereon, uh, they're still going to lose the Senate. Yeah, and the, and remember, they can't. You can't have fifty fifty because if well, well, if it's fifty fifty and Trump stays, then they still have the tiebreaker. But I, I but I, I I don't think they'll be able to get the fifty fifty. Yeah, just looking at the map, it's, uh, it's just not favorable. I mean, and th- there are times when when the electoral map favors the Democrats or favors the Republicans in Congress. Uh, and in, in the Senate, and this just does not favor the GOP. So if I do here, if I do, and and the nice thing about this 271, you can do this on your own. Uh, I'll put the link in the show notes. Uh, but in order for Republicans to have 51 versus 49, they've got to win Montana, Georgia, North Carolina, um, Iowa, and then they lose Arizona, Maine, they lose. Uh, I think. I think they're gonna, they're going to lose the seats in Iowa, and North Carolina. Okay. No, I don't. I think at this point it's uh, it's it's pretty it's close, but when the margin is the margin, um, you lose a few seats and yeah, it, it it's thin as it is. All right, so we we I think we agree that there has been some surprising data with regards to investment returns. And, and I think sometimes, you know, I was going around the country at the time, you know, giving talks uh, in 2016, and I would go to one city and it would be, uh, you know, full, very overly leaning Democrat. Their view is if Trump got in, the world was going to end, the economy was going to crash. I'd go somewhere else and I'd say, if, uh, if Clinton gets in, then the world's going to crash, the economy's going to crash, the world's going to end. And the reality is, Historically, neither are true. That's true. And 
the markets have been very resilient. And so the good news is, um, you know, there might be pockets that, that do better or worse. But um, I will say, though, given the experience with, so New York had a primary election, I think it was all mail-in, you know, voting is the voting machines and the apparatus. And it's kind of like your Christmas lights. Uh, you go in the garage in December and then you're like, oh, those lights don't work. You know, every two years or so, they they pull out these. Um, I think we could have, I don't know, if we, we might not know on election night is what I'm saying. Uh, probably not. I, I think we, I think we almost certainly won't know on election night. I don't think it'll be weeks and weeks later. Uh, it'll be a day, I think, at most. Uh, but I think there's a chance that um, uh, if, you know, if we know on election night, we'll know because Biden has won a decisive victory. And there's no two ways about it. Oh, yeah. If, you're, if your point on Florida's, by the way, Florida could be, could be tight. Uh, I, don't, I don't think it's going to be that. But yeah, to your point, Florida, Florida's on the East Coast, obviously. That's why we're talking about Florida, too. Uh, you won't know Hawaii or, or Alaska results for quite some time. Uh, but yeah, I, I think we could just from the mail-in standpoint, it, it's going to, and not every state counts the ballots beforehand. So for example, Arizona, um, even before we had uh, coronavirus, uh, when, when Kristen Sinema, uh, Kirsten Sinema and, and Martha McSally, their Senate race, I think it was something like a week to, to nine days so you had all these, uh, these mail-in ballots, right? People might drop them off or it took them a long time to count them. Uh, but I, I think it's the good analogy is it's kind of like if you ran a restaurant and you have 30 tables, but a thousand people show up for takeout, it's going to be tough to get the orders out. Um, it's going to be tough to count all this stuff on, on election night. So, you know, we'll kind of, we'll kind of see how that works. Um, all right, so you have Biden winning. I know you have the the Senate going to the Democrats. Uh, is it going to be Biden or Trump? If if today I have to make a prediction, um, it's very close. But I I, I have to say uh, that that today uh, the advantage is Biden's. I would agree with that. I think it's the, obviously the way two seven. I'll take two seventy win at face value and their consensus. I think it's advantage Biden. I think it's closer than you believe in the Senate. I think there's a chance, but it, um, I think 50-50, but obviously it, it hinges on the White House. Uh, yeah, and last time both of us agreed Hillary Clinton. Yep. And it was Trump. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> but we look at this more from a market perspective. And I just think, you know, for people listening, uh, the good news is, you can have any number of, of ways to the makeup of the Senate, the House, and the presidency. And uh, good news is markets are pretty resilient. We have no idea what's going to happen in the short term, but um, you know we'll see. Well, Spencer, thanks for uh, for joining us uh, today, and thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, great job, kind of going through everything. And um, I'll put for the listeners, I'll put everything in the show notes, and we will. Uh, you know, I'll link to two seventy win. I'll, I'll link to an article where you can take a look at the data that. Spencer and I were referring to on the construct and, and the returns and GDP. And uh, in four years, we'll do this again. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I very rarely talk about anything election. And, and we sort of say, uh, from an investment standpoint, you know, we stay sort of nonpartisan because it's, uh, 
you know, we want to look at that. So. All right, Spencer, thanks again for, uh, for joining us. Great to talk to you and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Derek. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.